morning, good morning. Listen to another episode of Down by Law. Happy holidays to everybody out there listening. We're so glad that you tuned in today. Um, we're coming live from beautiful New Orleans. Uh, the weather is a balmy 50 degrees, which is really cold for us. But guess what? We have a great show with somebody who's very accustomed to cold weather. Miss Danielle Ponder, an American soul singer and lawyer um, who's um, renowned for her stance on the criminal justice system and for her wonderful, powerful voice. Um, Ms. Ponder, are you there? I am here. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Happy holidays. I'm doing great, um, except it's 25 degrees here, so Ooh. <laughs> I don't know what cold. y'all call cold. <laughs> <laughs> you see how I brought us in. I, mean, I know you're from Rochester, New York. You're a native up there, so you know we're not really accustomed to cold weather, but I know you guys kind of deal with it and, and live through that, uh, through that challenge, I would say, more so than we do yes, down we here. Yes, we do. I would love to be in 50 degrees weather right now. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of holiday plans do you have? You know, I am just spending time with my mom and dad and my siblings and um, just trying to take a break from all of the busyness and just, you know, enjoy my family. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So, guys, everybody who's listening out there, I'm going to give you a little bit of um, an introduction to Ms. Ponder. But first, I I always try to open the show with doing this. Ms. Ponder, if you could please give everybody your social media contacts and handles so we can kind of follow along and look you up when they get time. Um, absolutely. My Instagram is at Danielle Ponder Music. I'm on Facebook, Danielle Ponder. And my Twitter is Danielle Ponder One. Okay. So Ms. Ponder is an American soul singer, which I, I love that term, and I want to get more into that a little bit later. But uh, not only is she a soul singer, she is also a licensed attorney. Is that is that correct? Yes. Okay. And we're going to talk about, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, brought you to the to the point where you are in your life now. Um, you know, and I know from from my understanding you've toured with some, some amazing acts like John Legend and the Roots and George Clinton, Clinton and, mm-hmm. you know, St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Can you tell us a little bit about their process? And tell us more about yourself and, and your journey to becoming a uh, a singer. Yeah, um, well, I've been a criminal defense attorney for about seven years, but music has always been my number one passion. Um, my father was a musician as well as a pastor, so I grew up playing the guitar and singing. Um, and I've just been for the past, really it's been quite some time, 15 years grinding, you know, trying to make things happen. Um, I did just sign my first record deal six months ago. So to Uh, all of the artists out there, it's never too late because my first record deal came um, six months before my 40th birthday. (laughs) Wow, wow. Congratulations. um, Thank you. And I've had the opportunity to open up for, like you mentioned, John Legend, George Clinton, um, and those have just been amazing experiences, and I've always tried to, no matter if I was practicing law or not, not forget my talent uh, that God gave me and that um, I, I really do feel it's my purpose to be a musician and to sing. That's wonderful. Now, 
you said that you came from a musical family. Tell us a little bit more about that. I was, I, that was one of the questions I was, I was going to ask you. I want to know, like, with you being so, um, so talented, you know, you had to come from a family of, of musicians. So can, can you tell us a little bit about that process and, and that experience? Absolutely. Um, my dad is a singer. He's a guitarist. He also plays the piano. And he was always singing around the house. Um, he's also a pastor, so he sang at church. And, you know, it's funny because he still writes music to this day, and we're actually working on an album for him. Um, He has dementia, but for some reason he's able to remember lyrics, even though he's struggling sometimes with remembering who my mother is um, and remembering, you know, where he left his, his coat or whatever it might be. But the music, it just shows the power of music because he can still remember his lyrics. He can still remember songs. So right now I'm in the process of recording him to really document it. You know, we definitely see the dementia is getting worse and worse. So we want to kind of document his music. But he's always been doing this um, since I was a child, and that really influenced me to want to uh, perform. So you brought um, Poor Man's Pain, one of your uh, songs that you did, I think you did that on on a tiny desk as well. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. We have that queued up. I want to let the um, our listeners kind of get a a feel of who you are as a singer. So, Lee, if you could go ahead and and play a little bit of that song so they can hear Miss Ponder's power. Hello. Hey. Okay. So, we were able to hear a little bit of Miss Ponder's song. Uh, Poor Man's Pain, which just shows shows her range and her abilities and her God given talent. Miss Ponder, what what um, inspired that song? Did you write that song yourself? Hello. Yes, Miss Ponder. Yes. Can you repeat that? You cut out for a second. Oh, I said, uh, what inspired Poor Man's Pain? Did you write that song yourself? I did write that song. Um, you know, I was inspired by just so many men and women who are incarcerated in our system in America. Um, my brother did 20 years to life, and that really had an impact on me. Um, but the story I think that really stood out for me is the story of Willie Simmons, who is a man in Alabama who's actually serving a life sentence for stealing $9 in 1982. Wow. Okay? Life sentence for stealing nine dollars um and he has not he's not eligible for parole the only thing that can be done is for the governor of alabama to grant him clemency um and his story just really shook me i think partly you know i was born in 1982 this man has been in prison for as long as i was alive for such a small amount um and so i wanted the song to really express the desperation that so many people who are incarcerated have, um, you know, to really see justice served. But his story really just struck me, um, and, and that really inspired me to write the song. And, you know, I, I definitely want to talk more about the inherent racism that we experience or inherent racial bias that we experience in the criminal justice system. You know, I'm a practicing, mm-hmm. practicing attorney myself. Um, I always try to bring a little bit of understanding and knowledge into the show when I'm talking to my guests from a legal standpoint. 
Um, but I want to, you know, I want to do a little bit more of setting that up for you so we can kind of have that discussion. So <clears throat> you, you went to Boston University, uh, Boston College. Which, which one did you go to? I, I went to Northeastern University. Northeastern, I'm sorry, in Boston, in Boston. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question. When you decided to go to law school, did you have it in your heart that you were going to be a, uh, going to, you know, public service, public interest? Absolutely. I thought I was going to end up doing criminal justice policy reform because mm-hmm. it was clear to me that my brother received 20-year sentence because of mandatory minimums. Um, he was convicted of a robbery. It was his third felony, three strikes and you're out. So it was clear to me that I wanted to do the work to end some of these racist, white supremacist policies that have resulted in people being disappeared from our communities. Um, and so that was my focus was really to do policy change. But mm-hmm. then I realized I really needed, you know, one-on-one connection and being a public defender I felt would be the best way um, to do the work. And that's, that's like frontline, right? When, you, when you're a public defender, you, you know, every day you're grinding out in court just trying to give somebody a glimpse of hope. And that's a really, really tough gig. I don't think that most people understand um, how, how difficult of a job being a public defender is because you have, you're, you're underfunded, you're overworked, you know, you're representing mm-hmm. people that you really don't have an opportunity to connect with. You know, and then you still have to, you have to also maintain a, a clear understanding of that person's humanity within this mm-hmm. big, overwhelming system. And that's very, that's very difficult. Um, tell us, yeah. tell us a little bit more about that. Like, you know, what, what were some of the, the problems that you really experienced as being a public defender? How many people did you represent in one day? As a matter of fact, let's, let's, let's start there. Oh, man. You know, if I'm doing arraignments, I could represent a hundred people. Um, in a day at an arraignment, um, you know, over the course of a year, I could have 300 clients and, you know, obviously, you know, as a lawyer that, that doesn't mean you have 300 trials. Sometimes cases are dismissed pretty, pretty early on. Um, sometimes there's a plea. I'd say out of 300 cases, you probably might take three to three of them to trial for a variety of different reasons. Um, And I think for me, I always, even in the smallest interactions I had with my clients or, you know, the smallest amount of time I had with my clients, wanted to make sure that they knew I was their advocate. Um, I think a lot of our clients come in like, you're a public defender, you're just going to railroad me, you're just going to plea out. And I had the experience of being a family member with the, with, brothers who've had public defenders, right? So I knew I was fighting against that perception. So it was important for me to try to build as much as a relationship with my clients. Um, that was actually my number one goal is to have great relationships with everybody that I represented. Besides being an amazing, you know, a zealous advocate, but was right. to also let the folks know that I cared because that makes a world of difference. And for me, it makes your job much better as a public defender if you can have great um, uh, relationships with your clients. Right. You know, I think a lot of times people don't understand this as well. Like for the vast majority of people that I know that, that, that take that, that dive and walk their walk as public defenders, they do it because they have a calling. You know, they really, mm-hmm. they really are against an unfair system. 
and they're fighting that fight every single day. And it's a very difficult fight that, to be quite frank, most lawyers don't even understand the, the severity of the situation for uh, for these indigent, quote-unquote indigent, poor people, um, yeah. clients, you know, these, these defendants. And a lot of times, you know, you see this, you saw this much more than, than most people see it. You saw the, the inner workings of the justice system and how it affects black and brown people and the degree by which it affects our, you know, our lives on a, a grand scale, just for the simplest things, you know, for marijuana possession or a traffic ticket or something to that effect. So mm-hmm. um, if you could, just, just give us a little, a little bit of your insight on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we definitely are in the belly of the beast. Um, you know, we're seeing the worst of the worst of our system. Um, and for the most part, we're representing people on minor offenses. You know, that's what I tell people. They say, oh, my God, how did you represent these people? That, And it shows me that the American populace really has no clue what criminal, um, what the criminal system looks like. People think it's 90% murderers and rapists and things like that. And actually, the majority of crimes in this country are property, property crimes. So we're talking about petty larcenies. No lie, I had a client who was arrested for stealing a pack of milk duds from the corner store, okay? Wow. I've had a 16-year-old client arrested for failing to have a bail, bell on his bike. I've had a client who was 72 years old on kidney dialysis sentenced to one to two years in state prison for driving on a suspended license. These are not outliers. This is more so... Um, the type of cases we see in our criminal justice system, right? Because our system is really about controlling, oppressing the black and brown community and protecting the elite, largely the property of the elite. Um, So, you know, in my six years, I had one case. um, I arraigned one person on a murder, murder charge, right? That's six years of doing arraignment uh, in, in felony court. So it's not, at least in, um, actually, these are some national statistics, 80% of crimes in this country are misdemeanor crimes. So we're doing a lot of grunt work for things that actually should not be in the courts to begin with. Right. You know, and going back to that, when you, when you talk about the protection of the elite, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't understand that the, the criminal justice system, as we know it now, was built home and you know it was kind of established during Jim Crow so if you understand what Jim Crow meant at the time for Americans mm-hmm. especially you know Americans of all colors and you know the protections that it afforded some people but also the inherent racism that was uh, rife within that system is probably you know it's, it's intuitive for us to be able to understand like hey you know if that's if that's how the criminal justice system was built you know it's obviously it's going to have a disproportionate effect on black and brown people because it was, it was designed to do just that. When you talk about somebody mm-hmm. who's going to jail for uh, getting arrested for a, uh, for stealing milk duds or going to prison for $9 or spending your life in prison for $9, like where's the humanity in that? Where's the, where's the, re- the view of the system from a, from the lens of, you know, this is a person and we're throwing this person away for such a small and, 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 uh, minuscule kind of situation, you know, and that's, that's one of the things I I believe that when you start talking about reform of the criminal justice system, that's the first thing we have to do is look at why, 
we're in a position that we're in and what's the uh what's the uh systemic uh aspect of of of, of the criminal justice system and the problems that we have mhm so, absolutely uh, I, I think understanding that foundation that it was a system built on white supremacy that criminalizing black people has always been that that was America's response to our freedom. Okay, they're free now, so we got to do something else. And the answer was to criminalize. And so that behavior of patrolling our communities, stopping people, it, it's rare that you find a, a black man who wasn't racially profiled in this country, right? <laughs> but as you said, that whole system is Jim Crow, black codes. It's just a, a new version um, of you know, what we've seen in the past. Right. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I believe that I think it's interesting that you first wanted to go into policy and changing the policy, because if we're able to uh, get into a position where we can change the policy, we're able to, we're able to better affect, you know, the lives and start dealing with some of the th the issues that we find in the criminal justice system, like, like with the inherent bias with plea bargains, with the uh, school mm -hmm. to prison pipeline system that we have set mm -hmm. up. You know, I think all of this stuff, if we take an approach where we look at it from a humanistic standpoint, we're able to address some of those issues that we need to address. I yeah. think we had an issue playing a song a little bit earlier. I still want people to hear that. So, Lee, if you have it queued up, if we can go ahead and roll with that for a second, that'll be great. We can't get that song played. I want people to hear it so bad. All right. Okay. Ms. Ponder, let's talk about, you know, some of the things we just mentioned with the justice system and inherit racism and, and uh, bias that we see. Now, from a standpoint of punitive versus rehabilitation, how do you feel about that, that uh, idea of where we are right now with the justice system? Um, I think that we have a long way to go to really have a system that is about rehabilitation and healing and making people whole. Um, our system right now is very focused on punishment, but it also is going to require the community to change its idea of justice. We often say they need to lock that boy up. They need to throw so-and-so underneath the cage, you know, so we have to change our perception and realize that justice can also mean that person gets what they need so that they no longer do any harm, right? Especially right. for the black community, I, I do feel that in our community, we, we do tend to say a person needs to go to jail or a person needs to get locked up or, you know, someone needs to um, almost cuss. I won't cuss. <laughs> But, you know, think about the heroin epidemic that has ravished the black, the white community. No white parents are saying, come arrest our children. No one is asking for more police for the heroin epidemic. Everyone's right. asking for services and support. So I think we have to change the narrative ourselves to stop relying on police and punishment for the social problems in our community 
and start asking ourselves, what do we have within our community that can help us heal, that can create uh, uh, young people who actually don't do harm and don't need to do harm because they have their other needs met. Um, and so that's where I would like to see a shift in our mindset that punishment honestly creates hurt adults who are likely to harm again. We know the prison door is a revolving door because you put a, a group of men who are all hurt into a box with no healing and then they hurt each other again and then they come out and do more harm in the community. So there has to be a paradigm shift where we are uh, interested in compassionate justice that realizes people need care, people need services, and they will be better people at the end of it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very, uh, it's the prime, a prime example is just what you said, you know, when you start talking about the heroin, heroin epidemic and the opioid epidemic, we're approaching mm-hmm. those, pro- those criminal justice problems as health issues and you know that that opens up a whole different realm of services and opportunities and funding and things of that nature that people get a chance to take advantage of when they when you start to say that this isn't just about crime it's about you know the health of the individuals who are uh, using these drugs or participating in drug activity and when Mm -hmm. you start to like you said it's a paradigm shift once you start to have a different conversation about what's actually the source of the issue and the symptom is always criminal activity but it's the it's the drugs in the community it's the drugs that people are are using that that prompts them to do certain things that may be deemed criminal so how do we change Mm -hmm. that and you know again you start talking about racism and things of that nature and how black and brown people are being affected by these policies you know, when you start to make that shift and we see that it's, you know, when, when it becomes a white issue, so to speak, then there's a different approach. And we have to be a part of making that approach the same across the board. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that talk about when, you, when, you, uh, when you're on our side of the law, you're talking about lawyers or prosecutors and just people involved in the legal realm in general. There aren't enough of us, you know. There are not mm-hmm. enough black and brown people to hold the system accountable for the treatment of people um, that's, that's, you know, that's wrong. So um, yeah. how, how, have you experienced, like when you, were, when you were a public defender, how many black prosecutors did you see, assistant DAs or DAs? Mm, I mean, in upstate New York, I think there's one black prosecutor in that entire office, um, and there's about 80 attorneys. Wow. So, one out of 80? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I believe she's biracial. So. Wow. That's tough, um, yeah. It's upstate New York is very white. Um, I definitely have had interactions over the years with black, black prosecutors, but very rare. Right. So with, with the state being, with upstate New York being very white, um, what percentage of your clients were minorities? Well, see, that's the way racism works, right, is that you <laughs> can be in a majority white state or a white county, but they're going to find the black folks. <laughs> so yeah. still, my clients were majority black and brown people. Um, so wow. our county, I think, is, I want to say it's 20% black. Um, so 
it's just remarkable how uh, racialized this institution is, that even in a very white county, still I would say 80 to 90 percent of my clients are black and brown. This system was built for black and brown people. And, you know, nothing says it better than that. No, not at all. And, you know, one of the things that we it's, – it's a, another amazing point. I'm in New Orleans, right, in the state of Louisiana. We've had so many Supreme Court cases come out of this state dealing with uh, jury selections and uh, strike, you know, bats and challenges and all of this different stuff that we see mm-hmm. as, as lawyers where we know that that's – some of these when, – when you're picking a jury, let's talk about that a little bit because sometimes, you know, you've got to educate people on what the legal process looks like from the inside. Right. You know, when you go to trial – and you're picking a jury, that jury is supposed to be made up of a of, of, of group of your peers from the community, right? And mm-hmm. um, when, when, this, when these jury selections are going, are going down, a lot of times certain, you know, especially when it comes to criminal justice, prosecutors, and in, in general, will, they'll strike people of color so they can have a jury that look that that is going to lean toward their ideas and you know, their theory of the case a little bit more than it would mm-hmm. otherwise. So we see that in jury selection, there's a lot of racism as well, but there are Supreme Court cases that bar, that should prevent those kind of actions from taking place. So what is your mm-hmm. opinion on that? What is, what is your experience been in terms of jury selections and um, how, how we can be inherently biased as well? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, um, just for the audience, a Batson challenge, we would be able to say that this attorney is knocking off black people. They're knocking off uh, brown people. They're using right. race to take people off the jury pool. The difficult thing is that they can often do it under the guise <laughs> of something else. So they could say, well, he had a, a, a father who was in prison, and so I think he'll be biased. You know, they'll come up with many other reasons other than I don't want this black person on our jury. So there's always ways for them to, I think, to get around a Batson challenge. Now, where I'm from, the problem we have, you're not going to believe this, is we, most of our misdemeanor, all of our misdemeanor cases are in um, what's called city court, right? City, the city is where the majority of black people live. But they pull the jury from the entire county. So what you get is a bunch of white suburbanites sitting wow. on juries with black with, with uh, black city residents, right? So let's say you have a case where the only witness is a police officer. I literally have had to say to my clients, I'm going to be real with you. We're likely going to get an all-white jury from the suburbs, and they are going to, it, I think it's changing now, but they're going to have an understanding of what police do and a trust of what police do that is very different than our reality. So that's something we have to weigh when we're thinking about whether we take a plea or whether we take, go to trial. Because we have such a white county, our jury, our jury is often 90% white in Rochester. Wow. Like, no, almost every jury, easily. Wow. Wow. So, so in your approach, in in the event that you are in trial, let me, let me take a step back for the Batson challenges is when you start talking about non-race-based reasons for striking that particular particular juror, juror, potential juror. Mm -hmm. I've heard, I've heard so many different things like, oh, that person went to college but doesn't have a job. Or that person went to uh, HBCU. (laughs) 
like mm-hmm. you know just mm-hmm. insane things that they re- that they use as rationale to st- because they know that in fairness like just like you talked about if you have a if you're a, if you're a, a black or brown defendant um uh, and your the jury or your quote unquote peers don't look like you don't come from where you come from how are you going to be treated fairly for the process and they're the final arbiter they have the final decision and what happens to you in this particular situation so you know how is that justice like the system if it was set up fairly which we have you know i i readily admit that we have i feel like we have the greatest justice system in the world but there's Mm -hmm. also issues that we have that need to be addressed and this is one of them so how do you make that fair so what what do y'all what have you what have you guys done historically to try to try to you know even the playing field so to speak in that kind of situation well one thing we've been trying to do is create all city juries um jurors that only come from the city right so that it's Mm -hmm. for example in new york city if you live in brooklyn your jury comes from brooklyn they don't come from manhattan now the demographics of brooklyn are changing a lot so that may not mean (laughs) much in the in coming years but trying to um, pull the jury from the com- the neighborhoods and the community that that person is from. So we've been working on that. It's been a little difficult just because the volume of folks you need in the pool. Um, and then the other thing is you kind of deal with, you have to learn to deal with the hand that's dealt. If you have an all-white jury, um, you know, in the voir dire process and your opening statement, for me, it's always connecting to a human being's sense of empathy, no matter what right. their race is. So I really try to structure my voir dire questions. That's when we're questioning um, the jury and my opening statement to plant in their heads and in their hearts compassion for my clients. Because I do believe that your opening is often where you can win a case, right? Because if yes. you get a person to believe something in their heart, then they'll pick and choose which facts they're going to listen to. <laughs> um, so I think even when we get all white juries, we often have to just do our best with that. Another thing we've been trying to do is talk about implicit bias um, with our jurors. I think they've created like a program for our pool. Not that you're going to undo years of implicit bias in one setting, but to kind of put that on front street um, and be able to strike those jurors who, you know, are have some problematic beliefs and to ask the right questions to get to the problem, right? Because right. you can't say, sir, are you a racist, right? But <laughs> there's other questions you can ask to really weed out um, problematic jurors. Yeah, I think, I think in voir dire is the best time to kind of really lay all of that stuff bare. And at best, mm-hmm. you know, you're able to have an open and honest conversation about it to get people to, because people don't, they may be inherently biased and not even know it. They don't even know what it means to be inherently yep. biased a lot of times. So when you're having that, that honest, I call it, when I, when I do it, I call it brutal honesty. Like I just start asking questions about things that, that make people a little bit uncomfortable, but it's something that we mm. need to talk about because there's so much at stake. And yep. once you have those kind of conversations, and you start to see people who really like, oh, well, I never thought about it like that. So can you be fair and impartial under the circumstances with that with that kind of conversation we've had in mind? Can you be fair and impartial 
And a lot of times they can. And some people, you know, when they're when they're being honest with you, they say they can't. But that all mm-hmm. goes to show. And once you keep those statistics and you start to study how the system is set up and, you know, what are some of the flaws that we have, then you can use this information and these processes to try to make it better for a lot of different people. And that's that's what it's about at the end of the day. You know, I think it's I think it's very profound what you said in terms of dealing with a majority white juror jury uh, pool. You you know you you have to find humanity. Like we're all at the end of the day, we have more in common than not. You know, and we have to find that those sticking points and make that and make that hit home as lawyers. And that's one of the difficult things to do as, mm-hmm. as a lawyer. But good ones kind of figure it out. You know. Yeah. I think uh, I also heard you say it may have been on your TED talk. You said this uh, that the courtroom is like a like a stage, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a play. And as a you know as a as a musician as an artist, how do you how do you equate that uh, that idea that the courtroom is like a stage? Yeah, I think it goes back to you know what you reference is getting people to feel something getting them to feel empathy. You know, when your favorite singer gets on the stage and sings about her broken heart, whatever it is, you can feel that. You either go back to a time when you got your heart broken or whatever happened, but there's something about music that really opens us up to feel every single note. God, think about Luther Vandross. Think about Aretha. Um, We can feel everything deep in our hearts because we're so moved. And I believe in our opening statements, even in voir dire, it's how do we move people? Um, and so that usually has been my focus is to craft an opening that is, is moving and that solicits empathy from the jury. And then I also like to, and this is not really because I'm a singer, you learn this in law school as well, the idea of repetition. I like to call it creating a chorus. So in my trials, I tried to think, what's the chorus that they, I want to walk them out. When they walk out, they can't stop singing the chorus, right? <laughs> so I try to have wow. that theme in trial that is going to connect and be moving Resonate. and is going to be something that people can't get out of their heads when they're in the deliberation room. But in, at the end of it all, you're also telling a story. And when you're writing a song, you're telling a story. And a great story, um, a, a great story writer, you, you feel like you're in the scene, right? Right. right I want right. folks to feel like they could have been my client. Um, and so I want to tell a story, the story in that way. So let me ask you a question. How did you come up with this, with these ideas? Like, because, you know, me as a trial attorney, I understand what you're saying on on a such a profound level. Most even most lawyers don't get the process by which you like we I'm I'm a I'm a graduate of the uh, Jerry Spence Trial College, right? So we mm. call it building a tribe. How did how did you come up with the ideas like you said building a chorus like you have that theme that sticks to them is like a hook. The hook gets you Mm-hmm. You know, and if, if you mm-hmm. keep that hook in your head throughout the whole process, once you go back into the room and y'all talking about the case and how y'all are going to decide it, the hook is what's going to keep you centered on, on whatever, you know, your theory of the case was. 
So how did you like? How did you make that? Is it just from your creative process of the artist that you came up with that? He just and and it just went. How did you find that somewhere else? Did you go to some kind of training? How did it happen for you? How did it click for you? Mm-hmm. Should I say? You know, you're not going to believe this. It's going to sound corny, but I read Johnny Cochran's um, autobiography, and he talked about that line in the O.J. Simpson case, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And that always seemed like, man, Johnny Cochran is magical. Like, he came up with this thing that we, we still remember 20 years later. But then it just connected to me that I do that every day when I write a song. Every time I write a song, I come up with a line that is catchy, that people will remember. And so I kind of realized that I had that skill set. I would have never thought about, you know, being able to do what Johnny Cochran did (laughs) as a lawyer. But I was like, wait, I do that as a singer every time. So then it just became clear to me that I had the skill. It gave me the confidence to say, oh, I just have to take my performer self into the court because my first trial was a disaster. Okay. I lost. (laughs) I was scared. I just did. It was just a mess. But when I realized that the skills I had as a singer were very similar to what I needed to do in court, then something clicked and I said, okay, this is my stage. This is my courtroom. This is my performance. Let's go. And that's where I feel like, I won every trial after that first trial. Wow. And that wow. was to me was the magic sauce. And that's amazing. Like again, you know, I I I see it so often. People don't know how first of the first and foremost you have to go in court being yourself. Like you have to be mm-hmm. unapologetic who you are. You know what I mean? Like you can't you can't try to, you know, cuz I think that it's like, um, what, what's the term? They say, like, the, the jurors could smell fear. It's like being in a pack of wolves, right? They could yes, smell yes. if you're not real. <laughs> they, could, they can feel all that. It just it exudes, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. first you have, to, you have to embrace who you are as a person, and you have to be brave. Like, and if, if that means admitting, you know, a bad fact, admitting that you're afraid of this situation. That's mm-hmm, okay because mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, like you said earlier, we're trying to find a humanity in a situation. We're trying to make yeah. sure everybody understands that. Well, first of all, as a lawyer, I, I try, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fairly large guy. I'm six two, three hundred pounds. Mm. I want to take mm. my arm off in front of my, in front of my uh, jury pool to let them know, like I'm just like y'all. I'm a human being. You know, I have yeah. feelings, emotions. Yeah. I feel all of this different stuff is important for me to do now. So when it comes down for to you believing what I'm saying as true as a fact, I need you to understand I'm com- the, the place that I'm coming from. So, you know, a lot of lawyers mm-hmm. don't get that. They don't understand it. And the fact that we're dealing with such high stakes on a regular basis, especially when you start talking about criminal justice and to not have lawyers who advocate from that kind of perspective is really troubling and it's scary mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. especially when you start talking about, you know, the public defenders and how overworked they are and all this different stuff that comes into play on the backside yeah. of this. Um, so it's, it's it's really refreshing to hear you have that perspective and finding your voice in it. I don't, I mean, I guess, you know, the singing thing just kind of got to a point like you you couldn't deny you had to go that route mm-hmm. <laughs> and leave mm-hmm. the law. So, so how was that process? Like what made you make that determination? Like, you know what, as, as great a lawyer as I am, uh, my real calling is, is on the stage and singing. So how, how did that whole process go, go for you? 
You know, honestly, I was uh, at the point in my job where I was being moved to more serious cases. And I just felt like the amount of energy and mental space that was going to take, I couldn't do both. Um, there was no way the majority of my caseload could be um, these intense charges, right? The so majority of my career, I was doing misdemeanors, nonviolent felonies. Um, but I just knew I couldn't at that time balance the music and those charges. And honestly, the clients deserved someone who wasn't going on tour <laughs> the next week, right. you know? Right. Um, so I just had to choose. It's either music or it's criminal defense. And music is my purpose. It is what God gave me uh, to, to move people on this planet. I know that, I know that, I know that. Um, so all I had to do was have the courage, because music don't always pay the bills, <laughs> uh, right. the courage to kind of step out on faith and say, because it's my purpose, because this is what God gave me, gave me, He's going to give me everything else I need to survive and to do it. Um, and it hasn't always been easy, but the season I'm in right now, my God, I, you know, <laughs> signing a record deal. Um, I just, you know, was on the phone with Q-Tip the other day, <laughs> like things that are just blowing my mind playing at Variety wow. magazine. You know, Angela, Lena Jolie is in the audience being flown to L.A. to do different things, I am shocked at how much my life has changed in the past. I, I have a new management team. I met them in February, and my life has not been the same. But it is really that knowing in my heart that this is the path, this is the path, and they say just begin to walk, and it will appear, and that's kind of what has happened for me. Um, so it was the best decision I can make is to do this now full time. Yeah, that jump. I know that jump was terrifying because you know you leave stability and and something as painful as it is. You know you were doing the 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 Lord's work by helping you know people and fighting for justice every day, but making that mm -hmm. huge leap from not from not knowing and not knowing is, is crazy. And I'm, I'm sure that your management team is going to work on getting you down here at Jazz Fest one year because we, you know, New Orleans would love you. Love to hear you sing. Yeah, and some of, you know, I love powerful, New Orleans so much. It's like out. one of my favorite cities in the U.S. Wait, you got to come amazing. visit. I actually lived there for like three months, and it was the really? best time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I worked what, did you, what did you enjoy about the city so much? Orleans, um, and I lived in the Garden District. And, man, I ate so much. When I, that was the only problem. I didn't gain about 20 pounds being in New Orleans. <laughs> but it was amazing. So what, what else did you enjoy about the city other than the food? Oh, of course. What else was there? I loved the music. I would go to this club on Frenchman Street. I think it's closed. It was called the Blue Nile. No, it's still open. It's still open. Is it open? Okay. Yeah, I would open. go there, and they would sometimes have, you know, like a DJ playing, and then the, for the first time ever in my life, they had a live drummer while the DJ was playing. And I was just like, man, these folks in New Orleans are just creative. You know, I love the black creativity is on every corner in that city. And um, yeah. there's also just like this free spirit that I really love. It's unlike any other place. I know you probably hear this all the time, but 
there, there's no place uh, like New Orleans. Just, and I know y'all don't call it New Orleans, but <laughs> I'm from upstate New York, so <laughs> nothing like it. I enjoyed it so much. It's 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 very it's the the weird thing about New Orleans is it's a uh, it's an epicenter for so many different aspects of Black culture, whether it be Caribbean, American, African. There's there's a for for lack of a better term, yeah. there's a gumbo of experiences from the the black the black perspective that it's it's all here. You can get whatever you want. And it's and, it, and it's really in, in New Orleans is a very small it's like a town. It's a small city, but it's concentrated, mm-hmm. you know. And it is based upon the culture. The culture is everything about the city. And you know, I think for the last couple of years, especially since Katrina, the culture has been somewhat under attack because you have a lot of people, transplants who come down who don't appreciate the culture um, as it as it is. Like when you go into nature mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I like this. I like these, these flowers and these animals, but I want them to be like this. And you can't do yep. that. You have to leave it in its natural state. And I, th- mm. and that's the beauty of that situation because it's, it's, it's organically got to a point to where you, when you saw it, you automatically recognize the beauty of the situation but you have to leave it as it is you can't possess it you know from your own perspective and i think that's right. what we're starting to see with new orleans but in terms of what it what it really means like i've been i've traveled the world and i've been in you know south america or the caribbean or somewhere like that and i feel as if i'm in new orleans because that the, the mm. connection is so strong there you know, and for yeah. black folks, this is like, this is a really, really good place to be black. Like you, it's, it's okay to be black here. It's okay to mm-hmm. be a different kind of black people. Cause you know, we're not all the same, you know, you're mm-hmm. going to find a vein for you to be yourself and to blossom. And I think that's a very important thing and we need to protect it as best we can. So yeah. that's what New Orleans means for me. Uh, and I'm mm-hmm. not even originally from New Orleans, but that's what it means. For me. So <laughs> I I'm love glad that, that you you came to appreciate it with the short period of time you were here. That's a wonderful thing. That means that you know it's real because you're real. Let me tell you. I wanted to ask you this. You you know on your bio they call you a soul singer, right? That's a heavy, heavy title. What do you? How do you feel about that? You know, what's your definition of a soul singer? Oh man, um, you know, Ndire said something once that I, I I love. She said soul music is just it gives you goosebumps. And to me, it's just music that moves you. Um, There is an emotion in soul music that cannot be faked. I've heard people fake it. And, like, nothing against this singer, but think about Christina Aguilera, right? Like, really sounds like she's trying hard (laughs) to sing soul music. Um, But to me, it's something that has to come from a deep place within you. Um, and the people going to know it. They're going to get those goosebumps. They're going to feel it. So th- that's kind of right. how I di- identify with soul or define, excuse me, soul music. So speaking of, I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. Like it's, it's the same thing with like trial work. Like you either got it, you don't, they're going to believe you or not. It's, you're going to appear authentic or not. Like it's going to be some mm-hmm. point where you're like, ah, oh, no, that's kind of, mm, I'm not feeling it. You know, mm-hmm. that happens. So tell me some of the people, like, who are some of your influences? Like, who did you who did you listen to growing up that really, like, just stuck out for you? You know, um, growing up, I listened to a lot of hip-hop, and I discovered the blues when I was in college. And that's mm-hmm. where I really started wanting to sing. 
um, Big Mama Thornton, Coco Taylor. And then obviously, you know, I listened to Aretha Franklin, but it was the blues singers that really made me want to sing because I was like, oh my God, how do they make that? How do they make me feel what I'm feeling? Like everything Big Mama Thornton does sounds like the truth. <laughs> it just, right. it's honest. Every, every note that she sang was just honest. So that's where I really was inspired to sing. And then as far as my songwriting and what type of music I wanted to do, Nina Simone really inspired me to be a vulnerable artist that I, because there was a time I was only writing political songs. Uh, to be honest, I was very just kind of self-righteous. But <laughs> Nina Simone kind of taught me that, no, you can write those songs about politics and about your people, but it's also okay to write about heartbreak and to write about your own struggles. Um, and she really rose to the top as one of my favorite artists of all time. Wow. How you feel about Etta James? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I put her right in that same category with Big Mama Thornton, Coco Taylor, Etta James. Jesus, just thinking about her voice gives me goosebumps, you know? Yeah. Who have, who have you heard yourself being compared to? Cause you have a, you have a very powerful voice. Like it's like, it's, it, it makes you stop. Like whatever you were doing, like when, when, when you're, when you're in your zone, it's just, you just pause. So, I mean, yeah, what, who, who have you heard yourself compared to? Um, I probably have heard the most Tina Turner and I've heard Gladys Knight. Um, but yeah, I do think I definitely have my own unique voice, but I have heard those two who I love dearly, so <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, you know that the the fact that you you start off being influenced by hip hop and you know you being the age that you are, the generational kind of shift that you're gonna see with you from like going from you know the older generations all R and B and then we got hip hop for us, and then mm -hmm. having being a singer kind of you kind of marry the two. So I think that's yeah. in your sound, but it's also just like it's uniquely you. And I think even like okay, so you were on, you were on Tiny Desk, right? Mm -hmm. did, you, did you have some kind of experience with them? Can you? I mean, that's that's a suit like right now is a super hip show, and you know it's very popular, but with with a certain set of folks. Tell us about that experience for you, and 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 what you got out of that. Yeah, and so my Tiny Desk was actually part of the Tiny Desk contest, so that was like a um, a submission to play the tiny desk. But right. in that process, I got selected as, I think it was the top 10 submissions. I didn't win the final contest, but I got to meet Bob Boylan. Um, and I was uh, featured in NPR's All Songs Considered. And honestly, that performance really opened, uh, up, opened up a lot of doors for me. So for any artists out there, I would say, you know, submit to the Tiny Test Desk Contest because you your entry might rise to the top as mine did. Yeah. I think, I think you know, from all I saw, everybody was really high on your performance and they just, you know, they, they were really excited about what, you know, what you, what your voice brought to the, to the uh, scene and the conversation, which is, which is, mm -hmm. is wonderful. You know, what do you have, what's coming up next for you? I know you just signed a deal, which is huge. And congratulations again to that. But what do you, Thank what do you, you have on the horizon? 
Um, I'm going on tour. Um, February, I'll be on the East Coast. Uh, April and March, April and May, I'll be on the West Coast. In March, I am going to the South. So we wow. haven't finished uh, routing that tour, but maybe New Orleans could be somewhere in the uh, mix. That would be awesome. I know we have Atlanta and um, some other cities in Georgia, and then we have Texas. So, yeah, I, if anyone out there wants to book me in New Orleans, I'll be happy to come. <laughs> I think we may be able to make that happen. We can. We can. Okay. That'd be wonderful. I think that your the city being exposed to your talent and you know your passion would be a wonderful thing. You know, I know, mm-hmm. I know. You know, it's it's hard for some to for me to see somebody uh, so talented as a lawyer like yourself and so passionate and such a true believer in and justice to not be a part of the the legal community, so to speak, in a you know mm-hmm. practical sense. But the fact that you know. You've, you've had that experience. You've talked about it. Like, even with your TED Talk, you talked about it. You, you know, people know how you how you compare the um, you know, your musical journey with your experience in the law and how the two can, you know, intertwine. And it's just it's mm-hmm. a wonderful thing. And I think that, you, you know, you coming to New Orleans and people seeing you would be great. And we want to make sure that we follow you and, and support your career as best we can. Uh, we're getting close to the end, so if you could, give everybody your um, your social media information again. So we can, you know, follow you and keep up with your career. Yes, it's Danielle Ponder Music on Instagram, Danielle Ponder One on Twitter. If you want to figure out where I'm playing, you can go to DaniellePonder.com, which is my website, and it's Danielle Ponder on Facebook. And I just want to tell you, I thank you so much for having me. It's not often that I get to talk to another black attorney who also appreciates the music. Um, and just opening up this space for me really means a lot. So I want to, I enjoyed the combo too. I could talk to you forever. So thank you. Yeah, I'm the same way. I appreciate you coming on. You know, we look forward to seeing you in New Orleans live because I'm, I'm sure that's going to happen. Casey, mm-hmm. I'm sure we can make that happen. So we look forward to it and we appreciate you and so much, you know, good luck with your career. And we'll talk to you soon. And we're com- we've come to the end. It went, it went by really quickly, right? It did. I'm like, we don't get no more time. <laughs> Quick but this was awesome. We'll have oh. to do it again maybe before my New Orleans show. <laughs> right. That'll be, you know what? Man, girl, you're good at this. Look at you. You should be that new master team. Wow. All right. Guys, we really right. appreciate have you. Have a great Another one. episode of Down by Law. We'll talk to you soon. Happy holidays, and we'll see you uh, next week. Sorry.